You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Cecilia Mazeka, an editor with McKinsey Publishing based in Singapore. Today we're going to be talking about one of the biggest stories in Asian business, China's so-called One Belt, One Road initiative, arguably its most ambitious economic and diplomatic program since the founding of the People's Republic. To explain One Belt, One Road and what it means to business, I'm joined today by Kevin Sneeder, McKinsey's chairman in Asia, and Joe Nye, managing partner of McKinsey's Hong Kong location. Gentlemen, thanks for joining. Kevin, let's start from the very beginning, particularly for anyone listening outside of Asia. But frankly, for many of us who live and work in the region, behind the diplomatic language and the policy speak, what exactly is One Belt, One Road? Well, at one level, One Belt, One Road has the potential to be perhaps the world's largest platform for regional collaboration. What does that actually mean? Well, there are two parts to this, the belt and the road. And it's a little confusing because the belt is actually the physical road which takes one from here all the way through Europe to somewhere up north in Scandinavia. And that is the physical road. What they call the road is actually the maritime silk road. In other words, it's shipping lanes, essentially from here to Venice. And therefore, it's a very ambitious potentially ambitious, covering about 65% of the world's population, about a third of the world's GDP, and about a quarter of all the goods and services that the world moves. And that really is what is at the core of this. At least a potential trading route, the belt, the physical road, and the maritime silk road, recreating the shipping routes that made China one of the world's most foremost powers many, many years ago. Joe, why is this important now? China is seeing a bit of a slowing down in its growth. A lot of people are saying that that's part of, um, I would say, the next growth wave of Chinese um, exports is really around how it's going to have um, uh, its its influence and its its, its build out right of infrastructure uh, in many of these countries. Most of them emerging markets um, in infrastructure, in real estate, uh, in lots of the things that frankly has really feel the very high growth in China in the past decade and whether that can be replicated in many of these countries in the next 10 years. Now that is actually very significant because many of these countries are really lacking in this infrastructure. I still you know, remember when I take a lot of delegates into China, they always marvel at the trains, the railway stations, the airports and all that, which frankly is really a bit of a, a miraculous creation in the last you know, two decades. The question is going to be how these are financed, whether there's going to be this sort of long-term um, planning that's required, um, and whether you know, the local governments and the state governments are able um, to take the so-called Chinese model in the Chinese infrastructure and figure a way how he can either have his own version. Some people have talked about this being the second Marshall Plan. And it's worth recalling that the Marshall Plan, which obviously was at the heart of the regeneration of Europe after the Second World War, was one-twelfth the size of what is being contemplated in the One Belt, One Road initiative. So the question really is one of the scale of this. The ambition is enormous and the sums of money are equally enormous. And that is why I think the success of this initiative or not will have two parts to it. One will be that the funds actually are indeed available and that governments are willing to deploy them. The second is that the money can actually be deployed wisely. 
there is a real risk that actually this becomes a source of funding that gets misdeployed and doesn't actually end up contributing to greater trade, contributing to greater economic collaboration, but actually just gets wasted on projects that really should never have got funded in the first place. So the potential is enormous, the scale is enormous, the challenge of making sure it actually comes to fruition is equally enormous. It sounds like it's a great concept, but it's really far from becoming a reality. Uh, could you elaborate on some of the challenges, such as funding and financing? I think the skepticism around whether this could be delivered has been at least partially allayed by looking at what's already been achieved. And maybe let's turn to the funding side and talk about that for a moment. The Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank has come into being. I think there were lots of questions around whether that would happen. And with it, I think it's $100 billion of funding of which China provides somewhere between a third and half, depending on how you look at it. That's happened. Its governance is still being debated. But interestingly, the governance model seems to have become a bit more transparent, a bit more recognized by the European powers that are involved than we'd initially have been expected. So you can tick one box and say that's progress. The Silk Road Investment Fund has also come into being. Again, we'll see how that unfolds, but that's somewhere around $40 billion of investment. And again, there were probably some bets around whether or not that would happen. And then there is the New Development Bank, which is the funding source for the BRIC countries. And again, that has another $100 billion of investment uh, allocated against it. These funding sources theoretically are beginning to move from the drawing board to at least some form of reality. How they operate, how they deploy, still to be determined. But at least you can start to see how the big hurdle of funding is beginning to manifest itself in terms of tangible sources. So the investment is, is a positive sign, but what's the answer to that question, the deployment of these funds, how that will be operated? Joe, what do you think? While we have the AIIB and the Silver Fund and the New Development Bank, you know, if you add it all together, it's still a very, very small amount relative to what needs to be funded, which is roughly between two to three trillion dollars per year. If you think about, you know, all the <laughs> infrastructure across a third of the world's GDP, so I think the question is also going to be. Even though you have these new banks and these new funds, whether they are able to change the way how investors think about the risk in a lot of these emerging markets, whether they will tag along, whether they will invest along, um, you know, infrastructure investment in a lot of emerging markets is notorious for its risk. It's long term, it's political, there are lots of uncertainties, and people are actually pretty unwilling to do that, investors, for many, many years. The fact that now you know, China is putting together um, these consortiums of banks and funds that are standing behind it, I think it's a very positive sign. What needs to happen, though, is that the rest of the world needs to go along and, and use that as a way to um, get past a lot of the things that have inhibited you know, this in, in the past, namely getting very familiar with the risks in a lot of these countries. For this funding to be deployed, a lot of things need to come together. First of all, you need to have transparency. Um, because if private money is going to be associated with this, and let's recognize, as Joe's pointed out, the gap between the public funding and the private funding is really what we need to talk about. That's only going to get deployed if people can see clear returns, transparency around the way that money gets uh, allocated, a balanced approach so that the balance between the public funding and the private funding is appropriate, 
conduct that everybody can recognise as being close to market principles, and a regulatory system that's able to work across borders. Those requirements are pretty substantial, and it's fair to say that at the moment, the rhetoric hasn't yet delivered. There's a lot that's got to happen before this moves off of the very grand and appropriate drawing board and into practical reality in some countries where it's proven very difficult to deploy funds. And, and frankly, one of the other transparencies that needs to happen is really around China's intention. Because one of the things that people are going to look at is how much of this is political versus on the business side. For a lot of people, um, there's still a little bit of a suspicion or skepticism around whether this is part of China's emergence as the next world power here, which obviously that um, there are some countries that are going to be um, a little bit less welcome. How are you seeing other Asian countries view One Belt, One Road? You mentioned the risks involved for investors and how other countries have to go along. Um, what are the implications for them and, and how are they engaging well, with China? The implications are very significant. And this week in Hong Kong, they took place a conference called the One Belt, One Road Summit. And I chaired a panel with the ASEAN uh, delegates to that uh, event. And it was quite interesting to look at the divergence even within ASEAN. So the Indonesians were quite clearly very excited about how is this going to play out? Uh, how is Chinese infrastructure investment going to make a difference in a place where they need that? And Malaysia is obviously one of the world's great trading countries, um, whereas the Philippines is still quite internally focused on one of its challenges is to become a trading country. And so in Malaysia, at least the way that people were responding to the concept was one of, well, let's see the economic output, but there was enthusiasm. What are the other points of contention? I mean, you know, how do you see Japan or the U.S. or other countries outside of Asia dealing with it? If you follow the establishment of the AIB, it has really been quite a um, geopolitical, uh, you know, uh, tension there in terms of who gets in first and who you know, gets a say in it. But the question is going to be where is where is the first rail being built because of this? Where is the first funding? And I'm not sure whether. Japan or some of these other countries are going to be a big um, beneficiary of these one by one road to be seen. There's a lot of countries. The other question I think that's out there is that China right now is also facing its own economic um, transition. We have seen enormous growth before, but it's actually slowing down now. The capital markets in China is also going through a period where you know there are a lot of gyrations between the stocks and you also see in China right now there's also overcapacity in a lot of sectors. So the question is going to be, um, given that China is also in a transition economically, how much more attention these stable enterprises can deploy overseas while domestically is also fighting a few fires on its own turf. It's coming at a very interesting time because one can argue that, well, this is part of how you deploy it overseas, but it's not as simple as that. A lot of our work in different provinces in China, we see a lot of um, challenges internally in many, many places. And so that's going to be another tension that while One Belt, One Road is great, but don't forget that China also faces a lot of um, uh, challenges domestically, and that also needs to be sorted out at the same time. We're sitting here in Hong Kong, and you're both based here. Is there a role for Hong Kong to play with this initiative? And is it a significant role? The prospect of Hong Kong not playing a role is something that I think would be quite disappointing or at least distressing for many levels because I think Hong Kong's role has been the gateway in many levels for China to the rest of the world. And while that role has been shifting, 
it still remains a vitally important financial centre, an RMB trading centre, and a source of advice, perspective and assistance for Chinese companies and Western companies trying to work with each other. So I feel that it would be disappointing if Hong Kong somehow didn't have a very important role to play here. What was intriguing in listening to the Chinese leadership, we had Chairman Zhang here this week, the number three leader in China, was the degree to which he went out of his way to reaffirm two things. What he felt were the advantages that Hong Kong enjoyed and what he felt the opportunities were for Hong Kong. On the advantages, its location, it's very well located when you come to look at the map and figure out the trading routes. That's why Hong Kong is what it is today. Secondly, it's open and free culture. This is a city that is the long-standing long-standing benchmark for openness. You know, 21 years at the top of the open trade indexes and various others. So very much seen as a place where one can do business. Thirdly, it's a place where there is a lot of expertise. Uh, he went out of his way to name professional services and advisory, engineering, construction, a lot of talents that have been deployed to build modern China, which, again, the chairman talked about whether they could be taken elsewhere. And finally, a culture. It's a can-do culture, entrepreneurship, the kind of initiative taking that's going to be important to this. And when he mentioned those, he then said that should translate into a series of opportunities that mirror those four advantages. So the Chinese leadership went a pretty long distance to saying we see Hong Kong as having a vital role, but also saying, I thought, we expect you to play a role in this major initiative for China. Whether Hong Kong chooses to play that role or not, that's more complicated because ultimately will hinge on the businesses and the leadership that's here seeing something that they feel they can invest in and see a return and make a contribution around. But I would have thought there's more upside than downside. Hmm. Do you agree? Sure. For Hong Kong Professional Services, I think that's really an area where there's a lot of upside, right? If you think about you know, in the past, as China was building out its infrastructure, a lot of Hong Kong you know, bankers and from construction, project engineers, all the way to risk managers and all that, you can imagine that there's a whole generation, really, of professional um, services companies that grew up in the last decade because of the growth in China. The question now is whether you can actually take that and go into the one belt, one world countries and replicate the same story. Now, the challenges there are going to be more because China was something that was very convenient and very natural for Hong Kong given Chinese everything else, right? Now you go into countries where the language is going to be a challenge for everyone and where a lot of the you know, local traditions and, and legal systems and all that is going to be very different. We all have to learn. But to be honest, Hong Kong um, has more advantages than disadvantages. And I also can't see any other city that's a better position than Hong Kong to do a lot of these. So I think that it's, you know, as a Hong Kong national here, I would say that it's our game to lose, but at the same time, we got to also strengthen quite a lot of muscle in order to play this game too. Hmm. So help people take stock here. Um, if I'm a business leader with operations and customers in Asia, uh, what are the key takeaways and what should I be looking out for in the coming months? I think for every skeptic, there are two optimists. And um, what was striking this week in looking at the gathering of business leaders was just the sheer number of people who showed up and the breadth of the countries they represented and the businesses they were part of. 
And I think, therefore, while it's going to be very easy to provide long explanations for why this won't work, there are people already looking at what's it going to take to make it work. We saw leading construction companies, leading financial companies, leading advisory firms, all looking to be involved. And so I think at this stage, the very practical side of this is you could choose to sit out all of what we've just discussed, and you could do so on the basis of this is really a foreign policy move, the economics are questionable, the geographic coverage is never going to be achieved, the financial returns won't be up for it. You could make all those assumptions and sit out. Or you could say, if I sit out, I may be missing out on the world's largest trading collaboration for many, many years, missing out on a set of theoretical opportunities that, if delivered, would amount to an enormous step change in infrastructure investment and the quality of trade. And you would say to yourself, do I really want to sit that out? Or is it time to at least understand at a deeper level and invest some time and assets in doing so? My sense, based on where we are today, is I'd probably want to do the latter and not the former. In other words, participate and at least be part of the conversations. And only after that, make the decision to not move forward. Kevin and Joe, thank you for joining us today. And thanks for listening to our conversation. If you'd like to find out more about our work in Asia, head over to mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.